I have high expectations for this crowd this morning. First of all, this is the 11 o'clock, 1130 worship service, right? 11, what time is it? 11. It's almost 1130, but this is the 11 o'clock worship service. So on a regular Sunday, you've been up for hours caffeinating, exercising, praying, I know. But today we got an extra hour of sleep. I mean, that, this is my favorite Sunday of the year. This is just one of those days you just wake up and go, uh, and then... On top of that, we woke up in Austin, Texas, and the weather today is absolutely unbelievable. Yes, thank you so much. We're so excited. Now, y'all can do better than that. So everybody said amen. Amen Amen is a good word. You know, the word amen just means let it be. Let it be. So when you finish a prayer and you say, in Jesus' name, amen, let it be. Let it be. That's what we're saying. So, Man, feet don't fail me now. I can't slow down. I can't get stuck. I'd rather die than hang it up. I don't know that you could find a more appropriate, a more fitting theme song for this generation than that one right there. To say, God, don't let my feet fail me now. I need me some freedom. I want you to look at the person you came in with or that you're sitting next to and with passion and enthusiasm, tell them, get yourself free. Now, I don't know that Paul Simon deliberately copied Jesus when he wrote that lyric a generation ago, but to get yourself free is actually one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith. It's really interesting to me as I talk to people who are not yet Christians, people who are kind of kicking the tires spiritually, a lot of times there's this pervasive misconception that somehow Christianity, or in particular Jesus, is constricting or maybe kind of confining when in reality the good news of Jesus Christ is all about freedom and yet a lot of times if we're to be totally honest with ourselves those of us who maybe are Christians the reality is we don't experience the degree of freedom that Jesus died for us to experience and that's why we're kicking off this series today called Prison Break, Escaping Normal. Because the simple fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, normal is not working. No matter where you go, we live in a society, we live in a culture that is absolutely frenzied and freaked out. And yet for all of our frenzy, for all of our hustle, all of our bustle, the reality is that we are not experiencing the freedom that God created us to live in day in and day out of his power of his grace, of his truth, and ultimately of his peace. A lot of times we're like that little video bumper where we feel like we can hear dogs in the, in the distance. And we feel like we got to run a little bit harder, move a little bit faster, only to escape normal. Well, this morning, as we dive into this series, I'm excited about what God is going to do not only today, But over the next few weeks, as we talk about genuine freedom across the board and throughout our lives, but no matter what subjects we touch over the next few weeks, the reality is every single issue of freedom in our lives comes back to the reality of spirituality. The fact of the matter is every desire for freedom that you have, that I have in this world, is ultimately a spiritual issue. The fact is... Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again, and lived for 40 more days here on earth and returned to heaven so that you and I could experience complete freedom. Not only freedom eternally, 
but freedom in the right here and the right now. And that's what we're about. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to look in Galatians chapter 5. You may have a smartphone that's got a Bible on it. You can look that up. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, is writing to this fledgling congregation there in the city of Galatia. And he's explaining to them, as he did throughout other letters of his in the New Testament, the realities of the gospel. His basic message is, yes, Jesus Christ lived, died on a Roman cross, and rose again, was alive for 40 days, appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses, and then returned to heaven. But now, so what? Now, what does this mean to those of us who remain? What does this mean in terms of how we live our lives? And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says this. This is reading from the New American Standard Bible. The Bible says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. He he died on the cross. He rose again so that we could live in this incredible, indescribable, but absolutely experienceable freedom, the liberty of God. It's that picture of what God intended when he created Adam and Eve. When you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, pre-Genesis 3, you have this sense of complete harmony, this sense of complete peace, this sense of complete wholeness between Adam and Eve, humanly speaking, but also between Adam and Eve and God, that spiritually there was this connectedness that they experienced. The Bible says that they walked with God in the cool of the evening in the garden prior to sin entering the picture. But the reality is that sin did enter the picture. I've got it, you've got it, all God's chilling got sin. We don't have to wonder who got the sin bug. We all got it. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus Christ became one of us, that Jesus lived on the earth for 33 years. And so Paul is explaining to the church in Galatia, don't ever, ever, ever forget that it's about freedom. That Jesus died on the cross and he wants you to live in relationship with him. But the fact is, and you and I know this to be true, that sometimes we still get bogged down. The reality is we sometimes still get constricted and constrained a lot of times in prisons of our own making, if we're going to be totally honest. Sometimes we're constricted and constrained by what other people do, but the reality is that most of our spiritual prisons are self-inflicted. They're self-built. And so what I want to do in the time that we've got this morning is just mention to you four spiritual prisons that are realities in our world, but then also provide the corresponding gospel key that unlocks the door to each of those four prisons. The first one is right here in Galatians chapter 5, and it is this one's going to be fun. Y'all, y'all are going to enjoy this one. Because we're going to set some people free. I'm talking about the spiritual prison of legalism. Legalism. Now, do not raise your hands. But some of us grew up in homes where we were kind of taught overtly and sometimes even just in the air that we breathed that you better follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, God's coming straight out of heaven with a lightning bolt that's got your name on it. And woe be unto thee. You heard a lot of King James stuff in in that kind of environment. You know what I'm talking about, that legalism. Some people are, you know, you kind of grew up in that guilt-based environment. It's like, oh, I'm I'm so sorry that, that you don't care that that hurt my feelings. You know what I'm talking about. 
And we grow up with that legalistic mindset. And a lot of times, no matter how much we've rebelled against it, no matter how far we think we've come from it, there's something in the back of our minds that says legalism is kind of the way to make sure that God likes us. And Paul says nothing could be further from the truth. In Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 6, he says this, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? I mean, if grace is so amazing, why don't just, it's just grace, just do whatever you feel like, knock yourself out. But then of course he says this, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? Paul's saying here, legalism is not the answer. This idea that, that becoming a Christian just makes you a better, good person is absolutely and completely false. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, make no mistake about it, is not just becoming a better person. Becoming a follower of Christ means that you have moved from death to life. Paul says elsewhere in Romans that trying to keep all of the rules, all of the regulations, all of the commandments, that is the way of death because nobody can do it. Now you may be thinking, well, I've never killed anybody. That's awesome. Congratulations. We hope that's everybody in the room. But you, you read another commandment that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. I've never committed adultery. Well, but Jesus says it's not just so much about what we do. It's about where our heart is. If you've looked at another person with lust in your eye, then Jesus says you've already committed adultery. Man, is that an inconvenient verse or what? <laughs> but it's, it's ultimately a heart issue. And legalism is no way to live life. Legalism, if you've tried to keep all of the rules and all the regulations, tried to be a good person, tried to be a good guy, tried to be a good girl, you know that legalism chokes the life out of your life. It, it just, just, there's a certain point where you're just like, enough. You know, I grew up in Houston and uh, grew up in a, in a Christian home. And when it was time for me to pick a college, I chose to attend the University of Texas. I, I came to Austin and, and there were people at my home church I know that went to my mom and said, I'm so worried about Mac going to that big party school in Austin. If, if he would just go to Baylor, then, then, man, that's where my kids are going. We've been praying for them to go to Baylor since they were born, and we found out we were conceived. And listen, here's the deal. Baylor's great. My wife went to Baylor. Sick them. It's awesome. But the people who grow up in a legalistic environment and, and then go to what their parents hope and pray is a safe little bubble of Christian morality, those people partied their heads off in college. Listen, I knew people who went to Texas who were as committed and moral Christians as anybody you've ever met. And I knew people who went to Baylor and learned how to party in Waco. <laughs> you can party anywhere if you can party in Waco. But it was a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Legalism is not a heart issue. Legalism, this is very, very important. We have to understand that legalism becomes a prison that we start to live in. And then we think, well, everybody expects me to behave this way. Don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go with those who do. And this is just what I'm going to do. 
That's not what God created us for. That's not what God desires out of our lives. Now, we're not saying that our behavior doesn't matter, that our choices are irrelevant. Just, just knock yourself out, whatever you feel like, man, knock go. Because the gospel comes along and offers as an antidote to legalism that the key to unlock the prison of legalism is the key of grace. It's grace. You see, legalism says our works deserve salvation. Grace says salvation deserves our good works. Salvation precedes the good works under the law of grace. Under the law, the legalist says, well, if I'm a good guy, then God will let me into heaven. And that's true. If you're as good as God, that's the definition of good. Being a good guy, being a good girl has never gotten anybody into heaven. Only God's amazing grace. And I think it's important for us to just acknowledge the reality that the longer we're around the Christian faith, the longer we maybe follow Christ personally, the tougher it becomes to remember just how desperately I needed that grace. How desperately I need that grace today because without that grace, I am dead in sin, spiritually speaking. But with grace... I've been brought to life in Christ. And because of God's grace, now I want to live my life in a way that honors him, in a way that, that he is glorified through and that my life works best in. When I really understand grace and how genuinely amazing it is, then my behavior does change. But I don't change my behavior so that God will like me. God loves me unconditionally and offered his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and rise again and because of that, I will live my life for him. Grace, grace unlocks the prison of legalism. Now, the second prison that I want to mention to you, some of you are going to get a little upset. I'm just going to tell you, and, and you're going to, you're, I'll tell you why. The second prison is sin. Sin. Now, I know some of you are thinking, ah, here it comes. I, I knew it. The music was cool, and here's just the bait and switch. And there, here comes the hellfire and damnation brimstone. I can tell he's not wearing a tie, but he's really enjoying this. <laughs> but I think we need to, to alter our understanding of what sin really is. Sin is real. Don't misunderstand me. But another way of looking at sin is just to understand that sin is brokenness. It, it, sin is, is brokenness. Whenever, whenever something is broken and doesn't function in the same way and for the same reasons it was created, it, it's, it's broken. That's, that's what sin is in my life. I was created in the image of a perfect God to live in relationship with him, to glorify him in everything that I do, and in that to find fulfillment and peace and freedom in this life. And yet, I've got sin. Nobody had to teach me how to sin. I'll, I'll give you one example. Selfishness. I could teach a PhD seminar on selfishness. I've never taken a class in one, but I could teach a class in selfishness. Now, you know people like me. I'm sure you're not selfish, but you know people who are. And the reality is, that's just in us. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, that 
innate self-preservation, that self, self-promoting, self-aggrandizing, that, that drive to determine our own destiny, to chart our own course, that is brokenness. It's sin. And it takes a lot of different forms, obviously. It can be selfishness. It may be an addiction, a chemical addiction, a pornography addiction. Whatever the manifestation of it is, I want us to understand that it really and truly is not just about morality exclusively and good versus bad, although that's there. It's ultimately about brokenness. It's about us not living up to our full potential and what God created us for. And sin can be a very real prison that we live in. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Again, inspired by God's Spirit. He says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin in Christ. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we never ever sin again. Boy, once I accept Jesus, man, awesome. But it means that we are no longer slaves to sin. We, we are no longer bound by the prison of sin. The gospel key to unlocking the prison of sin is reconciliation. It's reconciliation. Being reconciled, first of all, to God, but because of that reconciliation, also being reconciled to other people who also partake of all that the freedom of the gospel offers. It is this idea of brokenness being repaired, being brought back together. The Hebrew word is the word shalom. Say shalom. Shalom is a great word. And shalom, you know, we think as Americans, it's kind of the same as aloha. You know, it, it means hi or goodbye or it means peace, whatever, hang out. And that is a gross misunderstanding of the depth of the word shalom. Shalom in the Hebrew word, in the Hebrew mindset and heart set, shalom is this idea of completion, of wholeness. And that's what the gospel offers. The gospel offers that completion and the wholeness that our sin broke, that our sin fragments. And so the gospel comes along and offers this reconciliation, moving from death to life with Christ. The prison of sin is unlocked with the key of reconciliation. Now for number three, this, la this third prison, we have, to, we have to kind of put on our little academic hats for just a second, okay? A third spiritual prison that is so pervasive most of us don't even realize it's out there is the prison of relativism. Relativism. And let me just give you a working definition of what relativism actually is and look at how many times you notice it over the next week or month or so. Relativism is just this. It is truth or morality that exists only in relation to culture and context. It's truth or morality that exists only in relation to culture and context. In other words, there's no absolute truth. What you believe is true, that's true. What I believe is true, that's true. And it's, kind of, it's just all relative. Here's the problem with relativism. Again, 
this is, this is just kind of simple logic, but it's philosophical and it matters. Relativism would say that there is no absolute truth. Okay? The problem is that's a statement of absolute truth. So relativism implodes on itself. It can't even stand up to its own weight. Relativism would say, for you, 2 plus 2 equals 4. For me, 2 plus 2, I like 5. That, and that's, that's my truth. That's my truth. My truth. That's my truth. Here's the deal. Relativism sounds like a great idea. It does. It sounds very open-minded and, and you know, it, it sounds great. Until you have children or you have to pay bills. When you have children or have to pay bills, at that point, everybody becomes an absolutist. You, you can't tell American Express, you know what, I know you sent me a bill for $247 this month, but my truth, my truth is $48. That's my truth. Now, let me give you another example. Let's say that I woke up this morning and I thought, you know what, I'm going to put on a gray cardigan and just in my own heart of hearts, when I wear a gray cardigan, I am the bomb. I mean, I've got it going on in a gray cardigan. I mean, really, truly, I, I, I'm the man. And you walk into church here today and you go, I cannot believe he's wearing a gray cardigan. That is the greatest tool of Satan. I could never hear from somebody who wears a gray cardigan. Now, the truth it's probably somewhere between what you believe and somewhere what I believe. The truth is, I don't, I'm not the bomb or the man because I'm wearing a gray cardigan. That's not real. Neither is it true that a gray cardigan is a tool of Satan and you could never learn from somebody who's wearing a gray cardigan. The truth is somewhere in between. Now, the fact that you missed it and I missed it doesn't mean that the truth doesn't exist. The truth is out there. The truth is in here. And God as God, is the ultimate decider of truth. We do the best that we can to navigate and handle his truth, to discern and understand what the Bible says, but ultimately, God's truth is truth. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I, talking about himself, he says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. He is the ultimate expression of reality. And so relativism doesn't stand up. Relativism becomes a prison that we're confined in because things keep changing all the time. What was good last year may not be good this year. What was legal last year may not be legal this year or in that state or whatever. And so we don't know what's really true or real. And the gospel comes along and offers a key to unlock the prison of relativism. And the key is truth. Truth unlocks the prison of relativism. And ultimately, Jesus is that key. If you ever want to know what's real, if you ever wonder about what's true, what is absolutely true and was true yesterday, will be true today, and will also be true tomorrow, just look at Jesus. He's the truth. He's the truth. And the truth unlocks the prison of relativism. There's one more prison that I want to mention because it's a spiritual prison. And it's one that we could, we, we could do an entire series on. 
But just here, let me mention the prison of resentment. Of resentment. Bitterness. Anger and rage that, that gets stored up and, and held on to over time. Sometimes over years. And let me, let me just quickly say, I understand. Resentment's real. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's easy to hold on to hurt. And if I can, let's just, let's just kind of go a little bit layer deeper here and just more honest with each other. Isn't it also true that sometimes resentment's fun? Can we, can we just be honest with each other about that? Sometimes it's fun to keep a mat on. Am I the only one? There's no way. Let's be honest. Sometimes like, <laughs> you don't even know. <laughs> and that's part of the problem. And sometimes the resentment is completely understandable. Your resentment may be for a parent who wounded you or a loved one that everybody thought was awesome, but you know in places that nobody knows about or wants to talk about that you've been wounded, you've been scarred deeply. And that's real. But the resentment, the anger that we hang on to never costs the other person as much as it costs us. You see, when I hang on to unforgiveness and I'm like, oh, I'm not giving in. No, no. Hasn't even apologized. Has not even said he was sorry. <laughs> Come here. It doesn't do anything to the other guy. It doesn't do anything to the other girl. It just chews up inside me. As has been said, unforgiveness is like drinking a cup of poison, expecting it to kill the other person. It just poisons your soul. It just poisons my heart and my life. And it can choke out the freedom and the life that God created us for. Look at what Romans 6 says. So you also, you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Consider yourself dead to sin. That means that you stop thinking the way that you've been thinking. You stop saying to yourself, I can't let go. I can't forgive. I can't do this. Of course you can't. <laughs> it's too much fun. But Jesus Christ, alive in you, the same power that raised him from the dead is available to you and to me to allow us to turn the key on the door of the prison of resentment. And the key is called forgiveness. The key is called forgiveness. And forgiveness has nothing to do with the person who wounded you. Forgiveness is, has nothing to do with that other person. Forgiveness is a me issue. Forgiveness is choosing to not be wounded anymore. Forgiveness is deciding, maybe again today, 
maybe again before lunch, I'm not going to hold on to that resentment. I can forgive because of Christ who forgave me. I can choose to not be bitter, to not be resentful. Because Jesus Christ chose to go to the cross, to die in my place, and to rise again. Through his power, I can forgive. This is what the gospel does. The gospel changes everything. Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what prisons you have known in the past or what prison you might be in right now. But I do know that the gospel of Jesus Christ throws open every door. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that freedom, I mean personally and definitively, then I want to invite you to do that right now. I want to invite you to just pray a prayer of commitment. I want to ask everybody, if you will, bow your heads. And in this sacred moment, I want to invite you to please just choose to respond. If you've never done it, choose to respond to God's amazing grace. To accept the free gift, because you can't earn it no matter how legalistic. But his grace is sufficient no matter how broken, how sinful. His grace, his truth, his forgiveness is complete. If that's you today and you've never received that gift personally and definitively, then I want to invite you to do it just right now, right where you're sitting. Just pray a prayer of receiving. Just say silently, talk to God and just say, Jesus, I accept. I need your grace, your forgiveness. And I need your grace and your power to extend forgiveness. And so I give you my life right here, right now. I commit myself to you from this moment forward. I believe you died on the cross for me and that you rose again for me. I confess my sin to you, freely acknowledging it, to freely receive your grace and forgiveness. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. Amen. I want to ask everybody, if you will, just remain with your heads bowed for another moment. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, this is sacred ground. As God moves in people's lives. 
And if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, then I want to invite you to make sure that you know this is real, to mark this moment. And so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask you if you would just raise your hand and raise your hand up high over your head for a moment. And as you do, I want to make sure that you understand this is real and it matters forever. And it's important too that you know this is a moment that matters to us as a church family. And we want to be a a safe place, a family of faith for you. And so as a church family, we celebrate this moment with you. As you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together to tell you welcome home. Welcome home.